Thank you, Terry and Lindsay, for that wonderful song. It helps set the stage for where we are in 1 Peter this morning. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we will be in verses 12 through 19. As we've made our journey through this book of 1 Peter, we've seen the three big ideas, the theme over and over. Peter is reminding us that we are saved, we are suffering, and we are sojourning. This morning we begin the third and final section of Peter's letter. And what he has hinted at in the background is now in the foreground. He has mentioned suffering, but it's been a little bit behind us. Now this morning Peter puts suffering directly in front of us. So this morning Peter's goal for us is to help us understand how to suffer as believers. How to suffer as believers. So let's get God's Word before us. Would you stand with me in reverence for reading God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. God of heaven, we come to you this morning submitting to your word. You've given us a hard message. But you also offer us sweet comfort in your Son, Jesus Christ. Would we be reminded this morning that no matter what suffering you bring us to, you will indeed bring us through. We know that you will hold us fast. Help us to understand your word this morning that we might obey your word. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I look at this passage of 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, I see four movements, four big ideas, four points as we move through this passage. The first way that we suffer well as believers is not to be surprised when suffering comes. Not to be surprised when suffering comes. Why does Peter tell us in verse 12 not to be surprised? He says, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why does Peter tell us not to be surprised? Because so often, when suffering comes our way, we're surprised. We're often shocked when difficulties show up in our lives. We are usually surprised by our suffering. Peter told us last week in verse 4 that our friends and neighbors, those people that we used to run with, they're surprised when we don't run with them anymore. When we don't live the way that we used to, they are surprised. But then he tells us now, don't be surprised when they malign you. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. 
You know, we rightly reject the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. At least I hope you do. But is it possible that we believe only a slightly more cleaned up, a more respectable version? Now, we rightly, we would scoff at the fake healing services of Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and the ilk like that. But when we receive that medical diagnosis that brings our world to a halt, when tragedy strikes our family, we're surprised. We wonder, how could this happen to me? Have I not done enough for the Lord? Have I not been faithful enough that this tragedy would befall me? We think that there is some sort of option in Christianity that if we just do everything just right, that we will never suffer. And we baptize this idea by saying that this proves that God is blessing us. But what if God's blessings actually include suffering? I believe that is what Peter is teaching us this morning, that none of us will escape suffering in one way or another. The church father, Augustine, who lived almost 1,800 years ago, he drove this point home when he said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Jesus, the Son of God, He never sinned, and yet He suffered. How do we think that we, who have sinned greatly, will escape suffering? We are surprised by the fiery trials that Peter is talking about. But Peter is simply fleshing out the idea that he already gave to us in chapter 1. He told us that for a little while, a little while on earth, we may be subject to various trials. We may be grieved by various trials. But why? He told us in chapter 1, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like gold purified in the fire, these fiery trials that we endure in this life are actually purifying fires that melt away the impurities of our faith. Let me say that again because it's very important. These fiery trials that we endure during this life, they are actually purifying fires that melt away the impurities of our faith. If we're really honest, that's not the way we typically think. If we're really honest with ourselves, when we are walking through these deep, difficult valleys, we often believe that God is distant. We ask questions like, where was God when my parent suffered? Where was God when my spouse died? Where was God when that flood washed away my home? Where was God when those terrorists attacked our nation? We seem to think that suffering means that God is distant. But I want to submit to you this morning that actually it is God's reminder that He is very, very near. Peter's message is that we actually draw closer to God. We draw near to God as He purifies us by these temporary sufferings in this life. One pastor provocatively stated it this way. He said, we often ask why there is so much suffering in this world when we really ought to ask why is there so little suffering in this world. When we consider the weight of our sins against the holy God, the holy God that we sang about this morning, when we consider the greatness of sin in this world, the depravity of our lost 
neighbors, when we remember the justice that we deserve, we ought to marvel at how little suffering we actually endure. We deserve far more. And I don't say that lightly, but I'm trying to make clear what I believe Peter is making clear. In this life, we should expect suffering. But notice that first word in the verse. We don't endure suffering as those under the curse of sin. We will not experience the full wrath of God poured out upon us. We are the beloved of God. Peter takes a pastoral tone as he opens this last section of his letter. Look there in your Bibles at chapter 4, verse 12. He addresses his readers as beloved. Beloved. Even as he's going to speak to them about this heavy truth from the mind of God, he reminds them that they are loved by God. Peter's example reminds the reader that if we really love someone, we will tell them the truth. Yes, even the truth about suffering. This is the responsibility of the pastor to lovingly preach the truth. And the truth of God's love for all who are in Christ is a precious comfort in the midst of our suffering. So, beloved, how are we to suffer as believers? We are to expect suffering in this life. We're not to be surprised, but rather we should rejoice. We should rejoice. Verse 13 tells us, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Our response is not to be surprised, but rather to rejoice. James, the brother of our Lord, taught the same thing. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We rejoice because we've shared Christ's sufferings. Now, I believe that this simply means that we're following in Christ's footsteps. Because Christ suffered, we too will suffer. If we go through our entire Christian life and we never suffer for the name of Christ, we're never insulted, we're never rejected, we're never spoken against or mistreated because of the name of Christ, then I think we need to check and make sure that we're walking in the way Christ walked. When Peter and the apostles were beaten in Acts chapter 5 for simply preaching the gospel publicly, after they were released, the Bible tells us that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for that name. They shared in Christ's sufferings and they walked the way Christ walked and they rejoiced. Now, as we've seen multiple times in this letter, Peter's first epistle, he is simply practicing what he heard Jesus preach. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Peter uses that same language here in the middle of verse 13. Rejoice now that you may also rejoice and be glad 
when His glory is revealed. As we saw in chapter 1, we rejoice as we persevere through temporary trials as we await the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice now so that we may rejoice then. John Owen was an English pastor who lived during the 1600s. Owen and his wife welcomed 11 children into this world. Sadly, they buried 10 of them while they were still in infancy. That sole daughter that survived to adulthood, John Owen buried her not long after her wedding. His wife, the one who bore all those children, she also preceded him in death. During John Owen's ministry, he saw his country torn apart by the English Civil War. And when he came to the time of his death, he thought that everything he had worked for in his ministry was almost lost. John Owen was well acquainted with suffering and with sorrow. Yet here's what he wrote. He said, To those to whom Christ is the hope of future glory, He is also the life of present grace. For those to whom Christ is the hope of future glory, He is also the life of present grace. Christ gives us grace in the present life as we put our confidence in the future life. When we rejoice as we share Christ's sufferings, we will also rejoice and be glad when Christ's glory is revealed. We rejoice now so that we may rejoice then. Ah, but Peter adds a caveat. We're not to be surprised by suffering. Rather, we're to rejoice. But the second point is that we have to evaluate the source of our suffering. Evaluate the source of our suffering in verses 14 and 15. Peter says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You see, all suffering has not created equal Some suffering brings blessings, while other sufferings are simply manifestations of God's justice. Some suffering we deserve, while other suffering draws us even closer to God. Peter reminds us of the most common type of suffering being experienced by believers at this time when he says at the beginning of verse 14, if you are insulted. If you are insulted there at the beginning of verse 14. Now, to be sure, we know that by this point in time, about three and a half decades after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, there had been people who were martyred for their faith, people who had given their life for the sake of Christ. We saw in the book of Acts that Stephen gave his life for Christ. We see also in the book of Acts that James, uh, the brother of John, also was one of the very early martyrs for the Christian faith. And we've mentioned before that during this time when this letter was written, Nero, the emperor, was using Christians as human torches to light his garden. There were certainly people who were giving their life for their faith. But the majority of Christians at that time, I believe, the the ones receiving this letter, were often, more often than not, receiving social suffering. They were insulted. They were spoken against by their neighbors, their fellow citizens. 
They're busy trying to do good in the world, and the world calls it evil. Peter's audience experienced these results, these insults, and more often than not, we're beginning to experience those insults as well, more and more frequently. I guess even today, we still have brothers and sisters around the world who are giving their life for the name of Christ. We have brothers and sisters this morning who are in Nigeria and China and Afghanistan, knowing that when they gather, they're taking their lives into their own hands. But Peter reminds us that martyrdom is not the only type of suffering. If we are insulted for the name of Christ, he says we are blessed. So as the world curses us, God blesses us because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. You see, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, he is strengthening us for that suffering that we are enduring. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit within us. He's conforming us to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of glory rests upon us. So even as we know that we have an inheritance that is kept in glory for us, and that one day our faith will be made sight, the Spirit of glory, who is the Spirit of God, gives us a foreshadowing a foretaste, a down payment, a preview of the glory that we will ultimately inherit. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. When we evaluate our suffering, and this is the type of suffering that we are enduring, that we are receiving, we rejoice. But, verse 15, there's a type of suffering that we ought not to rejoice in because we ought not to live in such a way to receive it. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Why does Peter say this? I think Peter understands that our sinful nature allows us to rationalize almost anything. It's conceivable that a Christian could commit such a heinous crime listed here, which really covers all the categories of sin. And that we could commit such a sin and somehow claim that the punishment we were receiving is actually righteous suffering. When we evaluate our suffering, we need to make sure that it's not something that we deserve. That it's not something that we've brought upon ourselves by foolishness. So, how do we suffer as a believer? He's told us we're not to be surprised, but rather we're to rejoice. We're to evaluate the source of our suffering And see, is it a test sent by God to purify us, or is it a punishment that we deserve? Thirdly, we're not to be ashamed. Rather, we're to glorify God. Verses 16 through 18. Peter says in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Now, we don't think much about the word Christian. We call ourselves Christians, and we don't take offense if someone calls us a Christian. But early believers did not bring that name upon themselves. It was first given to believers in Antioch, in in Acts chapter 11. And it was given as a a name of derision. It meant, oh, you little Christs, you people who are following after that man who was executed. Oh, you Christians. It was not meant to be a term of endearment. And so in those days, if someone called you by that name, there was the temptation 
to be ashamed of the name of Christ. Peter knows very well the temptation to be ashamed of the name of Christ because there was a time when he too was ashamed of the name of Christ. The night that Jesus was arrested, as Jesus was being interrogated inside the home of Caiaphas, Peter stood outside in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire and denying that he even knew who Jesus was. Peter knew what it was like to be ashamed of the name of Christ, and he reminds us that instead we are to glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed of the name, but rather glorify God as you bear the name of Christ. Why? Verse 17. Because it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What is the household of God? Peter's already told us in chapter 2 that we, as believers, we're being built up into a spiritual house. We are the church, the household of God. And this judgment that he's talking about is not the eternal judgment of condemnation because we know that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But instead, this judgment is the judgment of purifying. It's the judgment he's been talking about in this passage. You see, we live now in the age of the church. But even as Christ is building his church, he is also purifying his church. We all know people who, when they encounter suffering because of the name of Christ, they leave, they abandon, they are ashamed of the name of Christ. And 1 John tells us that they go out from us because they were never truly part of us. But here's Peter's point. If Christ's church is suffering, the church that he loved and gave himself up for, If the church is suffering, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If we who are saved must endure suffering as our salvation is being purified, then what is the final result for those who reject salvation in Jesus Christ through faith alone, by grace alone? What will happen to those who do not obey? They do not believe the gospel of God. Well, Peter drives the point home clearly by invoking Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. We see that in verse 18. Peter, paraphrasing Proverbs eleven thirty-one, says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying if the righteous are saved through great difficulty, through great suffering, If we are saved, even while we are enduring the suffering that our Savior has brought us through, then how difficult will it be for the ungodly and the sinner, those who have not been made righteous by Christ? What will become of those who reject our Lord? Well, we all know that there's times in this life that it appears that they get away scot-free. There are times when it looks like they're living life without any problems. But we know that there actually is a difference between the fate of believers and non-believers. You see, we as believers suffer for a little while in this life. But those who reject Christ will suffer for all of eternity. It really is that simple. 
Friend, if you're here and you're hearing this message this morning and you've never repented of your sins, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I plead with you to do that today. Turn to Jesus. Trust Christ. You've heard it clearly stated this morning that yes, as a Christian, there will be times when you suffer in this life. But if you reject Christ, you will suffer for all eternity as the wrath of God is poured out on you in a place called hell. Would you trust Christ today? I would love nothing more than to talk with you about that in a few moments during our time of response. But for those of us who do name the name of Christ, we know that we will suffer in this life as we await the glory that is to be revealed in the next life. So we're not to be surprised by that. Rather, we rejoice in that. We're to evaluate the source of our suffering Make sure that we're suffering for righteousness' sake and not for unrighteousness' sake. We're not to be ashamed of the name which brings us suffering, but instead we are to glorify God as we bear the name of Christ. Finally, we are to entrust our souls to our faithful Creator. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So as we work through this passage, as we evaluate our suffering, and we know that we're suffering for the name of Christ, we're not ashamed of the name of Christ, we're not bearing suffering because of our own sins, but we're bearing suffering because of Christ. And we know that we're seeking to glorify God in that. We're not ashamed of Him. Then we can know that we are suffering according to God's will. Therefore, we can not only rejoice in our suffering, but we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word for entrust is a banking word. It's a word that means to put a deposit with someone. You take something valuable and you place it in the safety and the security of someone else. When we suffer as believers, we're to entrust our very souls to our creator. Peter uses this reminder that God is our faithful creator. It reminds us that God is sovereign over all. He's created all things. He has power over all things. He knows all things. Our suffering has not caught Him by surprise. But He is faithful. He's good. And we can trust Him. We can entrust our souls to God because that's how Christ entrusted Himself while He was suffering. Do you remember chapter 2? When Christ suffered unjustly, when he was reviled, when he was insulted, when he was dying in your place, what does the text say? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Christ commands us to entrust ourselves to God because he himself, Jesus, entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. Entrust yourself while doing good. There's that language at the end of verse 19 that we saw all throughout the middle section of Peter's letter about doing good. I won't revisit all that that entails at this point, but you see how it all ties together. So whatever you're enduring this morning, you can entrust yourself to your faithful creator. He will hold us fast. But as I close, I want to try and make clear what I don't mean. I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, while you're suffering, you just need to have a stiff upper lip and act like nothing's going on. 
When you're suffering for Christ, I'm not saying that that means that you never have sorrow or that you never cry out before the Lord or even that you never ask God why. The Bible is filled with examples, more than we have time to consider right now, of people who suffered well. Consider these two examples. Consider Job. Job lost everything he had. He was afflicted in great agony. And he poured out his frustration. He expressed his hurt to God. But in the end, he said, Though he slay me, I will trust in him. And I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he will stand at the last day. You see, Job was a mere man with a human nature just like me and you. And he teaches us how to suffer as believers. What about the God-man? Did Jesus suffer well? Of course he suffered well. He suffered perfectly without sin. But the night before his death, Jesus confided in his disciples. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And Jesus cried out to his heavenly father asking, is there any other way? Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. But in the end, Christ prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And as he hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, our Lord entrusted his soul to the one who judges justly, to our faithful creator. You see, suffering as a believer doesn't mean that we deny reality. It means that we embrace true reality, that this life is but a vapor. vapor. And even if we suffer now for a little while, Christ will hold us fast. As I've studied this week, I've taken great comfort in the words of a hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And when we think about that hymn, Uh, For me, I think about the first verse, which reminds us of the surety of the Word of God. But the rest of the hymn is actually all about suffering. The anonymous hymn writer, putting himself uh, in the voice of God, says, Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. That soul that on hell still, that soul that on Jesus still leans for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never No, never, no, never forsake. May we suffer well as believers, rejoicing and entrusting our souls to our great God. Let's go to him in prayer.